I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And we're the Trade Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week on The Trade Guys, we're talking services. The rise of transportation, travel, communications, financial services, and more have reshaped the global economy and trade policy in the last 20 years. But is Washington embracing the new services economy? We'll discuss all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys are really lucky today. We're here with Christine Bliss, who's the president of the Coalition of Service Industries. Christine has a lot of expertise. She was previously the assistant U.S. trade representative for service investment, telecommunications, and e-commerce. And she was responsible for overseeing all multilateral, regional, and bilateral negotiations and policy issues for those areas within USTR. Christine, welcome to the Trade Guys. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, and I really feel now like services has made it, that I was invited to be on the program. This is great. (laughs) Bill and Scott are really excited because we've been talking about We've been talking about cars and steel for the last three months. And soybeans. Finally, we could talk about something else, and soybeans. It's a great relief uh, (laughs) to to change the subject for once. Well, you may not be that relieved because actually services is a big part of the picture on cars and soybeans. Well, explain Um, about cars. Explain that. Before, before we okay. even do, before let's back up. Before you even do that, here at the Trade Guys, we think that we provide a service. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to educate, but and do inter- we export and the service? But but are we a service, or or what is a service? What explain to our listeners what a service is? Okay, well, there are certainly attempts at more wonky technical definitions of what is a service. But what we like to do at um, CSI is to say you can't make it, move it, or distribute it in any way without a service. And it's a, a simpler way of just trying to illustrate that there is almost no aspect of our daily lives that aren't impacted by or don't rely on services. And in fact, all of us are engaged primarily in services activities. So, yes. So the trade guys are a service. So the trade guys are definitely a service. I knew we were providing and, a service. And a great public service, you too. I just want to say service. that. And we're digitally enabled. And, and we, we do service. export our services because exactly. we have foreign listeners. Our producer, Fran, is here and she's providing a service. Well, but Scott, actually, maybe this gets a little too wonky, but. So when services rules were first developed, it was thought by the economists that you needed to sort of talk about the different ways that services are delivered. So I will just use maybe one bit of technical terminology. Nothing gets too wonky for Scott. Okay. Uh, That's why I'm here. But you've lost me already. (laughs) There you go. We interrupted. I am sorry. So there are basically what are called four modes or ways that services are delivered. Got it. They're delivered on a cross-border basis, meaning that you, Scott, are uh, sitting in here Washington, in Washington. And I have a listener in, in your, Belgium. In Belgium, exactly. So you are delivering a cross-border service. In the sense, you're talking into the microphone. I don't know if you're broadcast, how you're delivered, you're streamed over the internet, but as a result, that service is electronically digitized, sent over the internet 
to the consumer in Belgium. So that's an example of a cross-border service. But interestingly, there can also be a Belgian who comes to the United States, and maybe they're a tourist, and maybe they go to their local American Express office, and they say, oh, I'm out of money, or they go to a local ATM, and they say, oh, I need some cash. The minute that they press that button, put in their card, get the cash out of the ATM, that's also a service. Right. And that is a cross-border service as well. That's a service it's, export. It's a service export. And it's delivered in the United States. So there's the cross-border piece that works both ways. Mm-hmm. Scott delivering his message to the person in Belgium, the Belgian coming to the United States, getting money out of the ATM. Then there, there are two more modes, which a lot of people, I know Bill certainly is not one of them, but forget about. And the first one is investment, or called commercial presence. And what's interesting about services is the biggest portion of services from the United States is actually as a result of foreign direct investment. And so it's U.S. parents, their subs, affiliates abroad, providing a service locally, and then sending whatever it is that they need, asking for whatever they need from their U.S. parent. So that back and forth, that's also a way a service is delivered. That would be like what, a law firm or a architect firm? It could be. But not an automobile plant. An insurance. Well. Well, it, now let's take a package delivery. So we have FedEx, picks up the package, sends it to Memphis, Tennessee, which is their U.S. hub, but the package is on its way to Shanghai. And so there is a, a FedEx distribution center in Shanghai exactly. that receives the package, delivers it to the to the ultimate reci- recipient, and sort of remits all the paperwork electronically to FedEx Memphis. What, hap- what happens when the package ends up with Tom Hanks on the island and Wilson and that whole thing? Then somebody makes a movie. Yeah. All right. <laughs> or somebody gets fired, I was going to say. Yeah. But, but anyway. <laughs> one yes. or the other. Yes, one or the other. So what's interesting, and I don't want this to get too complicated, because that's one of the things about services. You can kind of wrap yourself into a pretzel when you think about all the ways that services can be delivered. But the the uh, delivery example that Scott brought up could be a combination of cross-border in the sense that there might be something in Memphis, maybe some paperwork that has to be done and processed in Memphis that's sent across the border that's used by that hub that's in Shanghai or wherever it is in China. So it would be both via the investment that's made and the airlines or the, uh, the airplanes they have in China that are shipping, delivering those packages, as well as that cross-border piece mm-hmm. as well. But back to Bill, though, and this this is the fourth mode, and that is um, by the entry of people into the, the foreign territory of another country or into the U.S. Um, and that is also a very, very important way that services so are delivered. So this is tourism. Well, well it, no. It, more not. likely, it's an assignment uh, of, an, of, a, of a, an official or an executive. For instance, I used to work for a big company in Cincinnati. I was assigned to work in their Toronto office for three years. Yeah. Okay. okay. I was a mode four uh, service export to Canada for the three years. You, Scott, were an export. I, I was an export. And then I was reimported to I the United it. States. I love it. Returned to sender, <laughs> as it were. But, but maybe the, the easiest way. That would be Elvis, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe the easiest way of Don't think, get me started. <laughs> thinking about it is that 
we're talking about people that themselves are services suppliers. Right. So they're not tourists. No, right. They're, they're the ones that are doing your computer processing if they're coming into the United States or vice versa. You, Bill, might be going over to Belgium to do some consulting. Um, if you, you know, for example, if you had a business that did environmental consulting, you might go over there, be hired. Or if you were a lawyer, you might okay, fly so what, ab- what about students? Students, students who come here, foreign students who come to the United States. Right. They would be consuming a service in the United States. So that would be an export, right? Like the tourist at the ATM. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So their tuition is, is an export, a service is export. Correct. Is that mode four? Because it's, it's not, a person? No, no. Because the student is not the service supplier. It's the educational institution that's providing the service to the foreign student. Okay, and Mm -hmm. the student is paying for it. Yes, exactly. And now you know why no one tweets about services. Okay. Right, right, right. No, you're right, you're right. But but that's the barrier we're trying to break through. And, And so that's why we do try and say things like you can't make it, buy it, sell it, move it without a service Correct. because it's literally that pervasive. Right. Um, okay, but wait a minute. You did three out of four modes, cross-border, commercial presence, people. No, the, no, no, no. The, the second mode was mode it? two. Which is and what? that's consumption, internal consumption. Oh, consumption right. by a foreigner. Right, I see. right, okay. right, right. That's mode two. We didn't number them properly. Yeah. Right. I yeah. exactly. hasn't had his coffee yet today. That's exactly. Right. Be careful with yeah, the we here. I did have a bagel, though. So oh, good. Ahead good. Of the game. Okay, I get it. Good. But I know that, among many other things that Bill has done, he spent a lot of time on that fourth category, mode four, where it's the people themselves Moving that are supplying persons. the service. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, which is in part a controversial thing because it's, it's a lot of it's all the H one Bs, right? Right. It's, it's the it's the foreign, visas to come for, study here for, in the United States. No, or, to come work here. Or come, in the work, come work yes. here. It's, yeah. right. it's all the Indians that work in Silicon Valley doing software coding, among other things. Right. Exactly. Not or engineers, Indian, not or, yeah, engineers, engineers who are coming here, science technicians, all kinds of people. Yes. 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 Right. It's specialty occupations. One of, one of my one of my staff members is from Ireland, and he was here on an H one B until he. Got his green card so we so so it's all yes. over it's it's, yes. it's prevalent fashion models can be h1b that's wow. another category interesting it's, it's really specialty occupations not students this was so. an issue with the first lady was it not melania was a fashion model who came on a an service H1B she was in a, a service export yes i'm not going to call the first lady a service export <laughs> she's no longer a services export. She's the first lady. She's the first, the lady. first lady. Okay. All but right. there ought to be a lesson there for the president when we do immigration policy. But that's another story. That's another story yes. for sure. Right. Well, the president talks a lot about goods. And the the U.S. goods trade deficit with China grew from $83 billion in 2001 to $375 billion in 2017. So that's the story that he's talking about. That's the narrative that he and his trade advisors are constantly talking about. The other side of this is that on services, the U.S. maintains a consistent trade surplus in services. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So um, particularly on the export side, um, we have about right now, I think it's around $40 billion in um, services export surplus. Um, and on to the, China. Uh, to China, uh, yeah. yeah. And on the investment side, interestingly, our investment into China has declined somewhat. 
China's investment in the United States has declined precipitously. Um, but you're absolutely right. Over the long term, we have maintained a services surplus with China. So, and, and this is in education, travel, and tourism. Well, what, where the what are the sectors? Yeah, so it definitely travel mm -hmm. um, and tourism would be one of them. Also, um, what would show up would be the licensing fees that are paid for intellectual property. Ah, okay, so royalties, licensing yes. royalties that counts. But the ones that we really focus on and think are so important and where we can really grow jobs and, and build and promote the services sector yeah, this is what I wanted to are do. things like other business services. And what that covers are things like financial services. Banking. Banking, insurance in particular. Mm -hmm. um, for example, just to give you an example, um, the securities rating service like S&P Global just recently set up shop in China for the first time, I believe. Okay. Um, and so that would be an example of a financial service where you'd go over establish to provide the service. Um, and it would be an example of U.S. market access. Similarly, China in the last two years announced loosening in the in, uh, in, on insurance. So it's easier to get a larger share of insurance companies in China. Um, Has that actually happened? Well, they announced it. But. They announced it. It's it's still in limbo, I would say. Another area that's still in limbo, um, the United States won a case against China in the credit card area, and U.S. credit card companies are still waiting to be awarded licenses to provide their cards in China, even though we won that case, well, I think it was back in 2011, 2012. And that's the kind of thing that would really benefit us in terms of a trade surplus, I would think. Well, I would separate the two. So the trade surplus goes to what we're able to do right now. Yeah. Um, and that's a good thing. And as Scott was saying, a lot of that surplus is from things like travel and tourism and licensing. Some of it is from areas like financial services. Sure. But not as much as there could be and should be. Um, so, so to answer your question, so the credit card piece d is not reflected in that surplus. We want it to be, yeah. but it's not there yet. So, But it, it seems to me that the services side of trade is a pretty good story for the United States versus the good side, which is not such a great story for the United States. That's that's absolutely right. And what it also points to is the importance of making sure that services is a really key part of the U.S. trade agenda going forward. Because that's a big part of the upside we have absolutely. in the rest of the world. If you think about the sort of the world-class financial services, banking and insurance companies who are in succeeding in this intensely competitive U.S. market, they have skills, they have they have they have products and platforms that would be of great interest to consumers elsewhere in the world, and they have trouble getting in and serving those customers. So we're, we're much better at this point at doing things like that as a country than making things. Well, Is we're great right? at making some things as well. We yeah. make high-tech things better yes. than anybody in the world, machine right. tools and and uh, and high-technology high, high, uh, high technology equipment, airplanes, things like that. Yeah. You, you want a toy airplane 
it's not going to be made in the U.S., but you want a real airplane, go to Boeing, okay? So we do make some great things, but we also have a key edge in services, mostly because of how competitive and open the U.S. economy is. It's forced the best to the top. And can I also add to that that I, you know, I think even as as services companies, as a service association, we think the manufacturing sector in the United States is very important, just like agriculture is very important. But you're right. What Scott is saying is true is that what has happened in the United States, and it should be a good thing, is that the manufacturing that goes on here is a lot of smart manufacturing, so that it's more high-end, the most technologically advanced, the most productive. And the reason I'm, I'm making that point is this is where I think services really ties in to the administration's agenda. So in promoting manufacturing, you really need to be promoting those services that support manufacturing. So you think of a John Deere tractor, which is the sort of an iconic American implement for agriculture. But the, most, the latest John Deere tractors are, are autonomous. They, they tap into the satellite, they, they, they uh, distribute fertilizer and seeds according to mapping that's done, geospatial mapping that's read by the tractor, they drive themselves through the field. This is all, those are all services that are embedded in that device, in that vehicle. So that, the, that, that combination is what makes many uh, sort of U.S.-made products the best in the world, not just because they're great products, but because of the services that are embedded and networked into the into the, the operation of the vehicle. And you know, another image that we like to make uh, or to paint for people is when you see that tractor driving down the field, think of it with a whole crowd of people surrounding it, yes. right? Because it's not just the farmer driving the tractor, it's all the other, the analysts, the experts, the technicians that are supplying services it's, that follow some, right along. somebody at the factory in Moline monitoring the performance exactly. of the engine exactly. in real time. That's exactly. a really interesting way to look it's at that. It's a things. fascinating thing. Well, it's an important way to look at it because my reaction when you're talking about this is, you know, that's one less job with an autonomous tractor. You know, but it's really but, not. But it's but not. It, but that's it's, the point. It's, it's not. It's a lot of jobs. And in, indeed, the farmer, being a large brain primate who makes tools, has got other things to do with his or her time. And so they can be better deployed rather than just sitting there driving. So it, it actually works very well for both the farmer and all the support people who help make it go. Are you that, able to quantify those jobs? Well, quantify them in the sense that they show up in various studies that are done. For example, Um, The OECD did a study and really looked at the role between services and manufacturing. And I think there, the figure they came up with is about 60% of the jobs in manufacturing, and this I think was an average over multiple sectors, was about 60%. So I can't give you, you know, X million, but just to give you an idea of the magnitude. There's another measure that's out there, and I don't have a, a number on the tip of my tongue, but it is being measured, and I think our Commerce Department is looking at trying to do this more, is for every goods export, there's a certain value or amount of services that's embedded in that goods export. And that doesn't really show up, and that's not... Anyway. Um, well, so, well, so who, who are the CSI, not to be confused with the television show, Coalition of Service Industries, who are your members? So um, my members are a really a cross-section of, quote-unquote, service suppliers, meaning they're companies that you go to to move, to finance, to, um, to distribute, to 
set up your, uh, your telecom networks, your IT networks that you go to for software. So uh, we have members ranging from uh, Chubb Insurance, Citibank, JP Morgan, to Google, Amazon, Walmart. I've heard of those. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and uh, But then we also, and many of those companies, interestingly, um, and then the credit card companies like MasterCard, Visa, but also media and entertainment. So Disney. I was going to um, ask you about media right. and entertainment. That right. has to play. That's that's always that's always been one of America's greatest exports. Right. Is our cultural and, and still is. And the interesting thing, as you know, that's happening there is it's not just that traditional sector that we think of the familiar names, but you've got Amazon, you've got Netflix, you've got right. others um, that are producing content. So it's really that broad spectrum of services industries and. This association has been around since 1982, mm-hmm. and it really started when people started to look at the idea of services and how important they were in the economy, and shouldn't we be developing trade rules? So, so what are the some of the tough issues that your members face in the international trade space? So two baskets. There are, on the one hand, the traditional kinds of trade barriers, like limits on the amount of foreign investing that you can do. There's also the idea of whether on a cross-border basis you have to actually establish to provide that cross-border service. Like Scott, would he be prohibited in Belgium from providing his service across border? I would hope not. Well, no, and that's But a it's good, actually an open thing. question. But, so these are the market access issues right. that services companies face. Right, but- I mean, everybody so, wants Scott all over the world. We want to give the people what they want. Well, Scott's special. Yeah. So, so maybe <laughs> we should- if you think about American movies- Wait till I get to Bill. You think he's special? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do movies. Is a movie, uh, movies. Is a movie a service or is it a movie a good? Well, so- there is the digital content. So when a movie is transmitted electronically, then it is digital content. So it's not technically a service, but it is tra- transmitted via a service. So it's becoming more complicated, though, because and in addition, um, now content is often streamed. So streaming itself is a service and maybe a little different than just electronically transmitting it. Distribution is a service. Right. The, the product is a good. Right. Well, well no, it, it, I don't think it, it, the, the I don't think Disney would say a movie is a good either. No, I don't. I, that That's is a that has question. been a gray area for a long time. Uh-huh. I think they would say when you have the film in the can, the old fashioned. Yeah. Then that could be a good, and there'd be a tariff classification. Yeah, it was that. an object. It had weight. It exactly. Had mass. Yeah, exactly. Was... When we used to have record albums, right. that was a good. Or and... even when it was on a floppy disk. That's when it got a bit more complicated, but at least there was a physical thing. Mm-hmm. But now that you have digital content, it's all broken down into bits. Right. Then um, Bill's right. That's not necessarily a digital service, but it's re- it's generally referred to as a, a product, a digital product. And the way that the United States and other countries have treated that is to say, you should give that digital product non-discriminatory treatment. Now, but when Disney, let's say it's Disney wanting to show films in, let's say China, uh, or any place with screen quotas, Right. Okay. They fa- the, 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 the first barrier they didn't face was transmitting the, the bits Okay, and getting the movie 
the digital content into into the country, but then they are limited to the number of screens they can use. So right. there are other market access barriers behind the border. Right, there are. And not that we want to go down that road because it can get more complicated, but there is an old case that was brought against China with respect to their barriers in the audiovisual sector and to movies in particular. And the way that was resolved was by negotiating a certain number of films that can be sold in China every year. So in that sense, there still is the traditional barrier that has to be faced, even though the movies themselves are now digitized and being streamed electronically. Classic example of managed trade, actually. Yes, that's right. They cut a deal with... You get so many movies, and that was it. And then, of course, it's overcome by technologies because we all watch movies on our laptops these days. Yeah, or, or iPads or even phones. But, but that leads me to the second bucket. Whereas we still care about the traditional bucket of trade barriers, we've now very much focused, and this is true across the spectrum of services sectors, on digital trade barriers. And the two, number one, and they come in different forms, are barriers to cross-border data flows and data localization requirements. And what I mean by that is if in order to provide your service in a foreign country, and for example, your credit card company, it could mean that you can't use your server in Denver to process that credit card payment. You have to set up a server in Vietnam and you have to set up a server in every country that literally would require that, which is prohibitive, is going to deter those companies from setting up abroad and and really prevent market access. So why do countries have that requirement? What's their motivation to say that you have to have the server in their country? Well, clearly one of the big motivations is just pure protectionism, that they're afraid that if they don't do that, then they're not going to develop their own competitive industries. And Vietnam is a good example of that. Another reason that's used, but it can also frequently be abused, is national security. Right. That they have, you know, that they've got to control whatever data comes in, goes out. Um, Another um, argument that's used is are things like money laundering and that they have to keep track of every single financial transaction and the currency that comes in and comes out. So there are multiple reasons that, that countries use. But... The argument we generally make is that if you require, if you impose that kind of requirement, ultimately the data that flows back and forth is going to be less secure. Okay. So which countries have the toughest service markets to enter? Well, depending on the side you're looking in, certainly China continues to have major barriers uh-huh. to services. And if you're asking me which areas, as, as an example, I would say financial services is still carved up. Yes, they have let in some market opening where they want to, where they think it's to their advantage. So in the insurance sector, there's been some loosening, and you're right, Bill, hasn't been fully implemented yet. Um, But they're still part of the services market that they've not opened up. Um, The ICT and digital part of the market is still very, very closed. Information communications technology. It, okay. Yes, thank you. And and the, I use that term shorthand to refer to telecom companies that lay the pipes, have the fiber, um, and also the internet services companies 
like Google, Facebook, others, um, Amazon, that provide the software and the services online. Um, and, and Microsoft is another one. And the reason I'm bringing up that example is cloud services, which mm-hmm. I think um, Scott referred to, are incredibly important advance and a very equalizing advance because particularly developing countries with poorer populations by virtue of cloud technology have incredibly expanded opportunities. And this is particularly true in the agricultural area. This is the story of Africa. Because absolutely, in Africa, when it came to landlines for telephones, there were like 100-year waiting lists from the government-run monopoly phone company. And all of a sudden, everybody has a mobile phone. And it's, it's, it has made incredible differences in people's lives. Right. Okay, and their ability to, to, to connect with markets, to, to understand what's going on in the world. It's just, it's been, it's been life-changing. Well, you've already hinted at this, but wh- which are the industries that are most likely to be targeted as uh, trade restrictive? Oh, you mean most likely to face barriers? Yeah, most likely. Uh, yes, most likely. Well, to so I would say it's it's really the historical, the industries that are the ones that where, you know, you have to go outside of the United States to get to your markets. And since only about 5% of the consumer base, the demand is here, it's most. So it's really down the line, financial services, telecom companies, the internet services companies, logistics, professional services to a large degree, uh, particularly in areas like um, construction services, architects, engineers, and uh, media and entertainment. So this is an enormous landscape. And yes. within this landscape, what, what's your take on um, the administration's trade policy? So really from the beginning of... I mean, are they neglecting services? I wouldn't say neglecting, but I think from the beginning, we've been concerned to make sure that we could get out there and do as much educating as possible. Um, and so the message has really been threefold, that uh, don't forget about services because the constant service surplus globally, yep. um, particularly with respect, respect to certain countries, including China. Um, to that you need to make sure that services continues to be competitive and you need to address barriers that are faced because of the way in which they're helping manufacturing, which is clearly a big priority in this, admi- in this administration. And three, we make a similar case with respect to agriculture, that it's also part of promoting agriculture exports. And then the last piece is small business. So how do you figure into the new U.S. Um, MCA deal, and how do you figure in with the trade war with China? Well, taking the U.S. MCA first, we were very appreciative of the fact that the administration essentially took um, and approved upon the five, six chapters that we always watch in U.S. FTAs, um, and, and they took a lot of what had been agreed to in TPP, So cross-border services, telecom, financial services, investment, digital trade. And they based the language in those chapters largely on TPP with some improvements. The Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yes. And, um, And so we've been very happy in large part with the way negotiations have gone in the USMCA for those five chapters. There's still some issues that we have that are out there. Um, but to answer your question, 
at least in the context of USMCA. I'm still getting used to that acronym. We are uh, too. We, we, we like to sing the Village People song just to remind us of the of, of the uh, the letters. Yes. You know, we did that in my class last week. We called at up Mar- the University video. of Maryland. Shout out to the, the Maryland. Yes, and the okay. thing we learned is that in the original video, they don't do the hand things. They don't do the Y and the M and the C and the A. That was made up subsequently. That was, uh, yes. It was a uh, national uh, craze. Knockoff videos that yeah. do that. National but. craze. Continues to be. A lot of fashion victims in 1978. Let me tell you. It's an amazing video to watch. You know what? Some people think that the the 70s had better fashion than now. I'm not one of them. Who thinks that? I'm not one of them. (laughs) That group of some is pretty small. Yeah. I think so. I think so. But tell us about, wait. Anyway, so so the the USMCA. So there's been a, a lot of good progress and important things that have been agreed to in the USMCA in those chapters. Um, there's still some areas where we have some concerns. We're we're still looking at the agreement as a whole, haven't made up our minds ultimately. What are you concerned about? Well, um, for example, uh, a number of our companies who are companies that handle the goods part as well as being the service supplier, like the logistics companies and like a company like Amazon or Google or Walmart, they care very much about customs procedures. So one of the good things that happened in this agreement was the degree to which com- uh, customs procedures were streamlined, which is a plus. But one of the elements that was part of that was trying to raise the de minimis level. And that there was an increase, but I think companies felt their hope it could have been a bigger increase. This is increase. the level below which stuff can come in without paying any duty. Right. So, so it's important, especially for small companies, small importers. So that's one piece. Um, and then um, there also is a provision that uh, in the agreement that says the U.S. can reciprocally reduce its own de minimis level, which right now was set at $800, which was seen as a, a big legislative victory. And so um, companies just want to make sure that that never happens. But it would take Congress to do that, right? Because that's in law. Right. So that's concerning. And then, um, although for financial services, there was a huge win, and that is for the first time ever, there's a prohibition on data localization barriers in financial services. That had never been included in a trade agreement. Um, But alternatively, a lot of concern about the carve back in investor state dispute settlement that narrower protections, which continue to be really important to services companies. So nervousness about that. And then the last thing, um, I, I won't give you a big laundry list, is procurement. And there, there is real concern because what happened in the agreement is for Canada, there are no procurement commitments and you just have to rely on their existing uh, WTO commitments. And for the financial services crowd, that's not good because there are no financial services commitments. On the Mexico side, they're basically just bound um, at NAFTA 1.0. And in that regard, there were no commitments on financial services. So also concern there because uh, U.S. financial services companies have a very, very big stake, particularly in the Mexican So you're, you still need to work through a bunch of things with the USMCA. Well, we're thinking about all those things, but at the same time, 
um, are recognizing there are some very good things. So it's really looking across the board. What, what about China? So for China, um, it's second largest U.S. Uh, services export market, huge potential. Uh, investment is very important in that regard. And so if your question is really what about um, on the tariff side, mm-hmm. what does that yeah. mean for services? What we're concerned about, and we've we've said this publicly, is that as the ter- tariffs have escalated, it's affected and is affecting services in two ways. One is there are those companies that actually have goods that are involved in the services that they supply. Their services are wrapped around the product in one way or another. So, and a lot of those items were on the most recent list that was approved for tariffs, so that's a concern. Um, But then there's also the concern that what happens when you reach the limit uh, when ch- if China counter-retaliates and then reach the limit of U.S. exports, what's left? And it's, it's services, basically. And so we're concerned about potential counter-retaliation on non-tariff areas and services. So these are services place. delivered beyond the border into, into China but affected by domestic regulation. Right. Yeah. So licensing. Right. So, so it is of great concern. So what we've said was we think we, we know that the Chinese practices subject to the 301 investigation are egregious, need to be addressed, but we just think engaging in negotiation is the way forward. So how do you keep services on the forefront with an administration that is trying to keep goods in the forefront? Well, I... As I say, it's a constant round of activities of meeting with the administration, making our arguments, putting on events like the Global Services Summit. Do you feel like they're hearing you when you meet with them? I think there is. For example, we had Kevin Hassett, um, chairman of the CEA at the summit, um, who was talking about the importance of the services sector and the economy. I don't think we've ever had a CEA chair at the services summit, so I think that's progress. We had uh, Secretary Ross at the summit last year talked about the importance of services. This year we had Under Secretary Kaplan deliver a similar kind of message. Um, we've had uh, a meeting with uh, Deputy USTR Mahoney, who's in charge of services, who also said, you know, we get it. We know services is important. So I don't think it's the case that there's a complete lack of recognition. I think it's just, you know, we have to keep pushing and we have to keep making the case. Similarly, on the Hill, we we undergo the same exercise. And I think on the Hill, we have over the years built a better base of understanding about the importance of services. It's a smart thing to invite officials to an event because they'll want to show up because it's exposure, it's a chance to articulate the administration's position, whatever it is. But uh, they also know if they're coming to your event, they have to talk about services. There's no point in coming to the services summit and talking about cars. So that means they have to prepare. And in the process, and they have to have something to say. They have to have right. something to say. So in the process, A, they learn about it and they cough something up that might or might not be useful. No, that's absolutely right. And that's why, for example, we were so appreciative that Chairman Hassett was willing to come because 
you know, he gave his perspective, which we might not agree with 100%, but at the same time, he talked a lot about the services economy. And he was the one, was he not, that referred to all previous trade negotiators, presumably including you, as feckless. Yes. Is that right? Yes. You didn't punch him out. Did no, you know? no, you know we're thin. We're very thick-skinned. We Look, have this, to be. This is so. a, the CSI is a great example of a, of an industry moving its issues forward and staying out of the Twitter timeline, which probably <laughs> both have benefits. We well, hope so. If you need guests at your summit next year, invite the trade guys. We will definitely do that. We actually have done that in in other contexts. Yes, yeah. so we did it for yeah. Wita. Yeah, we hit the road once events. in a while, so we'd be delighted to be part of. I think that would be great. I absolutely not and that we're soliciting or anything. No, no, no. nothing no. like a trade guys roadshow. And <laughs> and and let me also in uh, return just say I know you know we all we follow all the great work that CSIS does all the time. So um, if we can work with you to to create maybe more of a program on services, that would be great. We're there. All right. Just remember, there's only one letter difference between you and us. Yeah, that's right. And people confuse us with a TV show, too. So, you know, I mean. Not often. You'd be surprised. I don't think we look like the people on that show. but Well, you know. This is Mark Harmon. On a good day. That's 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 CIS. That's CSI. Also, just one letter off. So Yeah. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.